Marked for Christ is the title that we have met, uh, put upon the message tonight. Ezekiel chapter 9, I invite you to turn back to that passage. And let's just seek the Lord in a short word of prayer as we come to the preaching. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy mercies. We thank the Lord, I was said, where the two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And Lord, what a blessing it is to meet with those of like precious faith, brother and sister in Christ. But Lord, what a greater blessing it is to have a meeting with Thee. And we pray that I might, Lord, abide with us. Thou might tarry with us even a little longer. And oh, that thou would give us understanding as we come into this passage. I pray to that end that thou would give us, Lord, the help of the Holy Spirit. Thy Spirit would brood over this gathering. Lord, that thou would fill this preacher. That thou might, Lord, help us to preach as thus. And thus saith the Lord. I pray that thou might apply the word as is needed to each and every heart. Oh, we, Lord, know tonight that the man cannot cause an anxious thought. Preacher cannot cause that anxious thought in any soul. Lord, thou must come and do the work. And we pray, Lord, that thou might, oh, Lord, teach it the people of God. And thou might, Lord, edify us. And thou might, Lord, trouble and convict even the unconverted. And, Lord, tonight, that thou would be pleased to bless even as the word of the gospel is preached. Hear and answer our prayer. Do abide with us now, for we ask these things in our Savior's name. Amen. Our nation has changed immensely over the last number of years in terms of the sin that is rampant within it. Sodomy, murder, adultery, you name it. It's now found in every town, village, every city, and all practiced openly and seemingly without any shame. And that is which rises and stinks in the nostrils of a thrice holy God. But men and women, of course, we know that there's nothing new under the sun. And what is true today is true down through the generations of time. And in the day of Ezekiel, he was given to see the sin that was in Jerusalem. That city in particular, that holy city that is placed in the center of the land of promise, that holy city that knew particularly the blessing from God. And yet Ezekiel chapter 8 speaks of what Ezekiel was to see as shown by the Lord. And they're noted as the most wicked abominations. And you'll notice Maybe you don't notice, but do take note of it, that that word abominations is one of the strongest words in the old Hebrew language, and it's noted six times over within the course of that one chapter. And there is the image of jealousy set up in verse 3. You'll note it was at the north gate. The north gate was the place of the altar where the sacrifices were made. There is also the great abominations as you make your way down that chapter of other things and the worshipping of, of paintings and sins that were in the darkness and they said, well, the Lord can't see us. You have sun worship, turning their back on God but turning to worship the sun. And it seems that the further you go on into that chapter, the progression, the progression further into the chapter, 
the worst of, of all uh, the, the sins get. And the worst of all, of course, was that such wickedness and sin was being committed in the house of the Lord. That was where the apostasy was at its height. It had the effect of provoking the Lord to anger. That's how chapter 8 of Ezekiel closes. And so chapter 9 begins, and it speaks of what Ezekiel recorded in terms of the response that was made from heaven. There was a loud, loud voice of God in his ears. The message was that those who had charged over Jerusalem were summoned to stand before the Lord. Now when you get that theme into your head or into your mind, that thought, I want you to understand that there's not a calling of some army in Jerusalem here, although they are called men in verse 1 of the chapter. Yet what we are looking at here are the angelic beings from the higher court of authority. These are the guardian angels who were given charge over the redeemed of the Lord. And here were those responsible for Jerusalem. And they're brought together, complete with weapons, to receive their orders from the Lord. And Ezekiel is given to see this sight. As it is already the case in this book, he has seen a vision of Christ. So now he is especially drawn to consider one who was among this company of men. And what follows, men and women, is what I want us to consider tonight. And that is, mark for Christ. As I draw you in particular, although I make reference to other verses, but I'll home in on the words of verse 4. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Won't you note there the identity of the man, first of all? You see, in verse 2, we are brought to uh, understand that there are six men. Behold, six men. You see the word behold, by the way? It, it really begs you to stop and think. It's a little word that means give consideration to this. What's about to follow? And it says, Behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen with a writer's inkhorn by his side, and they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. Six men are called to stand before this brazen altar so as to receive their commands. And with each of them having a slaughter weapon in their hand, it's obvious what they're about. They were to receive their orders concerning the judgment that was to fall upon the city that had apostatized. And think that there was only one destroying angel in the night of the Passover. Or you think of the cities of the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah, etc. There were two angels were sent forth to destroy those cities. But here, for the city of Jerusalem, we have six men. But it is not without significance that there's another who makes up that complete and that perfect number. There's one man among them, we read in verse 2. I want you to consider the preeminence of this one man. He's not just numbered among the six. He's among them at the, as the head of them, as their leader, as their commander. He's just one man. And dear people, there's just one man whom our attention is to be taken up with. There's just one 
man who is the fairest of 10,000 to her souls. There's just one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's one captain of the Lord of hosts whom Joshua was to meet as he went on his reconnaissance trip even to uh, view out the city of Jericho. And he appeared that time with a, a, a drawn sword in his hand. And now he stands among and above these six men with their weapons. And as Joshua realized who he was, he fell down before him and he worshipped him. That would have been a sin had it been an ordinary man, had it been even an angel. You see, this was the Lord. There's only one supreme, sovereign Lord and King. Only one man whom God hath highly exalted and given a name which is above every name that one day every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Only one Savior. Only one Redeemer of a lost mankind. Only one who can stand into our guilty room instead. The blessed, blessed Jesus, he's the one. My dear friend, if you're going to be in God's heaven one day, then it will be by Jesus only. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That was the very purpose of his coming. Tell me, is it Jesus only for you tonight? The preeminence of this man identifies him already as one of the Old Testament appearances of Christ. You'll notice garments. You see, it says in verse 2, And one man among them was clothed with linen. There's a particular mention made here of the garment that he was wearing. He's clothed with linen. Linen, of course, in the Scripture speaks to us of the righteousness of the saints. If I can draw your attention to Revelation 19 and the words of verse 8, it speaks of the bride. The bridegroom's coming for his bride, the church. And says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And the church will only be clothed in righteousness because of the righteousness of Christ that has been laid to her account, that has been imputed to her in salvation. That's what we have. That's the great exchange that is made when you come to Christ for salvation. He takes off the filthy rags of your sin and your self-righteousness and clothes you in his perfect garment of righteousness. It speaks of his purity. It speaks of his sinlessness. But the linen also reminds us of the high priest who served in the tabernacle and in the temple. You might remember little Samuel. Samuel, verse Samuel chapter 2 and verse 18 says, But Samuel ministered before the Lord being a child girded with a linen ephod. The ephod was a garment that the high priest wore for going to prayer. It was a linen ephod. You indeed might also consider the instruction that Aaron and his sons were to receive. Exodus chapter 28 and the words of verse 41. I'm proving to you here what the righteousness or the linen garment is all about. Verse 41 says, And I shall put them upon Aaron thy brother and his sons with him, and shall anoint him and consecrate them and sanctify them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And I shall make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness from the loins, even unto the thighs they shall reach. 
So the linen garments were the garments of the high priest. The, the garments that Aaron wore and the sons that succeeded him. The high priests were those who offered the sacrifices and presented the blood before the mercy seat. And they were also those who interceded on behalf of the people before God. And so it is in Christ. You see, we have a great high priest who not only offered the sacrifice, he was that sacrifice himself. When he offered himself upon the cross of Calvary. And he ever lives, we know, by Hebrews, to make intercession for us. See this man girded with a linen garment on, and you see, as Ezekiel did, Christ himself. Tell me tonight, is he your high priest? Does the blood atone for your soul? His blood? Then you'll consider the significance of the inkhorn. One man among them was clothed with linen with a writer's inkhorn by his side. There's another little detail. The inkhorn was used by the writer, by the scribe, if you like, with the task of uh, recording and noting things down. The prophets were those used of God to write down the mind of God and those things that must surely shortly come to pass. Here's a man with an inkhorn. And in what we see is the office of Christ as prophet. He is, he is, he, he is the word of life. His word is truth. He is the one who knows the end from the beginning and the good from the evil. And in the scriptures we're told about the book of life. Indeed, it was that which the Savior said to his disciples that they should rejoice in. Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, Notwithstanding, he said in this, Rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Tell me, are you assured that your name is written in those pages bright and fair? Can you say tonight, preacher, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. For when God flicks through those pages on that great and final day, when all the nations of the earth shall be gathered before him, your name will be found among the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall enter into the kingdom of God, all because of one man, because of Jesus Christ. Who is he? He's the king. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's just what Ezekiel saw here even in this great vision. Our prophet, priest, and king, even the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the identity of the man in this passage. It's an appearance of the Lord Jesus himself that Ezekiel was to see. And I would that you would get a glimpse of Christ tonight so that you will never be the same again. And so as we look at our text, but we already know now the identity of the man. What about the task of Christ? This man whom we have now identified is given a specific task and work to do. That charge, we might say, firstly, was one of finding his people. The judgment of God was coming upon the city of Jerusalem for their sin and for their abominations. And maybe, shockingly, you will notice where that judgment was to begin. Verse 6, you'll see it in the middle of the verse. Begin at my sanctuary. That's what God says. If there's ever a verse in the Scriptures which reminds us that not all who come to God's house, 
Not all are, who are found in church are saved. Then you, here you have it. Here you have it. There are those who have a profession of salvation. But there's no possession of Christ as their saviour. There are those who have respectability. And they have a good appearance. But they deny the power thereof. Not everyone in God's house is born again of God's spirit. Not everyone is saved. Not everyone is faith. Saving faith. And the charge to the incarnate Christ. Who the incarn was to go and find his people. Starting at the sanctuary. And then moving out of the sanctuary and moving throughout the city. And thank God as the Lord went forth, he would find them among the older men and women. And he would find them there among the children as well. Those who knew the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And tonight as the Lord walks amongst us. Revelation 1 reminds us he walks among his candlesticks. He walks among the churches. As he walks amongst us, I wonder, is your name recorded there as one of his? Can you say, he is mine and I am his? Has there been that time in your life's experience when the Lord has found you? I found you as a sinner on the road to hell, deserving of the judgment and the wrath of God for your sin. But like Saul of old, he stopped you in your wild career. He stepped into your life, your life of destruction and ruin. And he enabled you to see your undone state before God. And he gave you the grace to call upon him in mercy to save your soul. You were born again of God's Spirit. You see, men and women, boys and girls, that was the purpose of the Savior coming to this earth. He was to take upon himself the form of man, yet without sin, that he might seek and save that which is lost. Thank God he's still seeking for the lost sheep. Thank God he's still finding boys and girls. Aye, and adults too. Thank God his matchless grace is able to reach down and save to the uttermost. You see, that was the charge that was given to the Savior. Find his people. But not only that, but note that he had the task of protecting his people. This man was to go out throughout the city, and knowing them that were his, they were to be distinguished from the others. The destroying angels, you will note, were those who were to follow. Look at verse 5. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go ye after him through the city. They couldn't go before him. They couldn't run ahead of him. He was the one who went before, so that in finding his own, he would set them apart. And in doing so, they would be protected from the judgment and from the destroying angels that were coming after There's only one who could set them apart. There's only one who could distinguish them. And that was the Lord himself. He didn't give this charge to the angels. For you see, men and women, God knoweth them that are his. God knoweth. 
And only the Lord can protect them that are his people. And dear soul, so it is to this day. For the Lord not only is still the mighty to save, but he also keeps his people. The apostle Paul could say, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Having found his people in salvation, he doesn't cast them off to go their own way, to support themselves, but we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, protected in such a way that no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Protection, it means there shall never be a miscarriage of justice against any of God's redeemed. He knoweth them that are his. And consider the task of the man with the ink horn was to finish the work. Drop your eye down to verse 11. It says, And behold, the man clothed with Linen, which had the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as thou hast commanded me. I have done. He was one who carried out as God had commanded. There was a going through the city. There was the beginning at the tabernacle. There was a setting apart of those who were distinguished from the wicked. He could say, I have done as thou hast commanded me. Now there's some who have a problem with these words being associated with Christ. I don't see the problem. Because I read of the Savior in John's Gospel where he said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And when all was accomplished... He could hand in his report in prayer. He could say unto his heavenly father, John 17 and verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. That's even before he went to Calvary. Because it was already done in the mind of Christ. I have finished the work that thou givest me to do. Dear loved one, tonight I uplift before you the Christ who finished the work of atonement on the cross of Calvary. He didn't do a half work. He didn't do a work on the cross that will take you two-thirds of the way to heaven. No, he finished the work. He satisfied God's divine justice. He fulfilled the law of God that we had broken in Adam on our behalf. And having offered one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Tell me, are you depending on a finished work tonight? The work of Christ on the cross that can never be repeated, that can never be taken away from, it can never be added to, for you see it was complete and it was perfect. I have done as thou hast commanded me. We point you to a Savior who has completed the work. Everything that needs to be done for your redemption for your salvation, for your sins to be pardoned and washed away neath his precious blood. It has been done. Jesus paid it all. There's one other thing I want you to see. There's a character of the believer here. You might say tonight, and preacher, I see that this man is set apart from the others. I see that this man is a type of Christ. In fact, 
It's an Old Testament appearance of Christ. I see the task that has been given to him. Remember, men and women, a judgment has been given by God unto the Son. He hath appointed him to be the judge of all the earth. In that he raised him up from the dead. There's proof that it's Christ. And you might say, I've seen these things, but what does it mean to be saved? What are the blessings that are bestowed upon the soul that is converted and saved by God's grace? And while we would readily admit the list is too long to mention, I want to share with you something of what it means to be saved by the words of our passage tonight. You see, the character of a believer is seen in verse 4 in our text. The Lord said unto them, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. The mark of the believer is seen as those who mourn over sin. The man with the inkhorn was to go through the city. He was to begin at the sanctuary. And he was to see those who cried. Those who sighed because of the sin that had filled the city and the abominations of what was been done in it. For God's people will be those who have a heart to do that which is pleasing in God's sight. And they'll have a heart which is grieved over sin. There's no such thing as being saved and at the same time not knowing the work of God's grace and sanctification. Being set apart unto God. Because the Lord saves us that we might be conformed more and more into the image of his dear son. We're set apart from sin in the world more and more unto God. The Christian is one who has changed from the inside out. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. A Christian is one who mourns over their sin. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's not talking about mere bereavement. That's mourning over sin. Their own sin. And the sins of others too. Because it dishonors the Lord. And this man was sent out, commissioned to go out and to mark those who sighed and who mourned over sin. You might remember what David said, if I can give you the reference, Psalm 119, and verse 136. Just listen to these words. He says, rivers of waters run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. Rivers of waters. When's the last time, child of God, that we wept because of sin? Our own sin, the sin of the nation. You consider how Ezra was affected when he heard the sin of his people in his day. Ezra chapter 9, in the words of verse 3. And it says, And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle, and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard, and sat down a stony. The stony is an old English word. You can nearly work it out. He just sat there like a stone. 
because of what he had heard, uh, the, the abominations that had been committed uh, uh, throughout the land. And you uh, read on and you'll see in verse 6, and he said, Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Now, Ezra maybe, and we would say he wasn't in the midst of that sin, but yet he includes himself in it. He says, our iniquities, our trespasses are grown up onto the heavens. He says, I'm ashamed and blush. No blushing today and over sin. No shame. Tell me, do we know anything of this spirit, the spirit of, of the psalmist who, who wept because of sin, the spirit of Ezra who mourned who is ashamed? Do we know anything of this? Or can we say tonight that you are the cause for others to having tears run down their cheeks because you are the sinner? You see, a believer is marked as one who mourns over sin. And dear loved one, if you come to Christ, there will be a mourning over your sin. There will be a repenting of a turning from it. That you never turn back to it again. You don't want to go back to it again. You're returning from your sin and you're turning on to Christ by faith. Then the believer is one who's marked by the blood. And the Lord with the inkhorn was to go through the city. You'll notice in our text he was to place a mark on those who displayed such a spirit. Verse 4 again. The Lord said unto him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh, and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And Ezekiel in this great vision, he was to see the Lord go forth uh, with the destroying angels following. And he marks all those whom he knew were his own. The same was so in Egypt. We've already considered it in our study. The death angel approached on the night of the Passover. All that had the mark upon the house were those who were safe from the angel of death and destruction. What was that mark? It was the blood of the Lamb. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, the Lord said. And what is the mark that Ezekiel was to see the Lord place in those in the sanctuary and in the city? It's the mark of the blood. Or you notice the little word mark there in our text, verse 4. In fact, it is the letter of the Hebrew alphabet that means cross. Isn't that a powerful thought? All the Hebrew letters have a, a significance to them, as you've heard me say before, and the, the little symbols and the very word mark is the Hebrew letter that means cross. We're not speaking of some physical mark here, for there are those who run about with dust on their brows, and they're not the children of God. There are others who are, have the waters of baptism wet their brows, and they're not saved either. Because salvation is not found in baptism. But I want to tell you that the Christian is one who is the mark of the blood of God's sacrificial lamb applied by faith on their hearts. And we're marked by that invisible mark. And the Lord has marked us for life. We're sealed with the spirit of promise. 
You see, Paul taught the believers in Ephesus that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, In whom, that is in Christ, ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We're sealed by the Spirit of God unto the day of our redemption, the redemption of both body and soul. Now let me ask you, is the mark of the blood upon your heart tonight? When God sees you, when God looks down in upon this congregation, does he see the mark of, the, of his son's blood upon your heart? Because you are sheltering neath the blood of Calvary's cross. While others depend on opinions, I'm depending on the blood. Is that you tonight? That leads me to say that the believer is one who's spared and saved from the coming judgment. You've asked me, or I've put it to you in the hypothetical uh, question, what does it mean to be saved? Well, here are the characteristics of the believer. One who mourns over sin, repents of it. One who's marked by the blood. And one who, thank God, is spared and saved from the coming judgment. Look at the words of verse 6. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children, women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark. And begin in my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. You might ask, what's the reason of that? Well, if you look across at verse 12, chapter 8, then he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not, the Lord hath forsaken the earth. You see, they began with the leaders in the sanctuary. But verse 6 tells us, Come not near any man upon whom is the mark. Slay not them. The destroying angels had come to do their work. But none of God's redeemed were to be touched. They were spared from the destroying weapons of these angelic servants. And because it was Christ who marked out his people, there was the assurance that not one will be passed over, not one will be forgotten about. They were spared. They were safe. And men and women, as I close tonight, what about the greater judgment that is yet to come? What about the greater judgment at the end of this world? Are you in danger of being cast into hell for that eternal destruction, set apart as a Christ rejecter, one who refused the offer of mercy in the gospel, one who sat in a gospel preaching church, time without number, and yet said no to Christ? Because you see, that's how it will be for many. The Lord said in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, he said, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me. Literally, on you go. You wanted to go your own way, on you go. To take a fire. 
prepared for, your devil, for the devil and his angels. But here's the thing. The believer will never be in hell. The child of God will never be there. That's what it is to be saved. Saved from our sins. Saved from eternal destruction. Saved from the lake of fire. Is it not time you were saved? I wonder would you come tonight. And ere you leave this house, know that the mark of the blood is upon your heart. And you're sheltering beneath the blood of the Lamb. Mark for Christ. May God help you to come. May the Lord be pleased to write this word even on your heart this evening.